Hello, I'm Nick Huzar, uh, the host of Steph TV and the co-founder of OfferUp, the largest local mobile marketplace in the U.S. And I uh, started this channel because I was seeking answers, answers to how I impact the planet. And I've observed billions of dollars of transactions and offer up on a monthly basis. And I found it really hard to find answers. So uh, this is my passion project. And I figured, why don't I just interview really interesting thought leaders to help enlighten us? And with me today, I'm excited to have Mike Winterfield, who's with Active Impact Investments, which is Canada's largest climate seed fund. And so I think Mike's going to have lots of perspectives around climate, investing in this space. And so, uh, Mike, thank you so much for being here. I really uh, excited to dig in and talk about this topic with you. So um, you know, maybe handing it over to you, just, you know, how did you get into this space? Yeah, well, I mean, first off, thanks for having me on, Nick. I, I've, uh, I've enjoyed all the conversations that we've had so far, so I have no doubt we'll have a, a good one today. And your story is, uh, is one of the reasons I got into what I'm doing. It's just you have a really inspiring story uh, yourself with what you did with OfferUp and, and the positive environmental benefit that, that that business is creating. So congratulations to you on that. Thank you. Um, how did I get into this? Um, yeah, I can I can tell you a little bit about my background uh, later if it's relevant. But but I don't come from a finance background. is is one of the first things I tell people uh, that will either worry about giving me their money to manage for them or or not. Um, I come from an operational background, so I spent most of my career in sort of sales, sales leadership, and other uh, senior leadership roles, COO, president of of a, of a few different companies. But basically. Through that time of my career, I just I, I viewed it as me getting an opportunity to experience a lot of what our founders have to go through. The typical problems, um, uh, some successes, uh, but just all the things you have to try to figure out as you scale, whether that be geographic expansions or um, had a chance to do some small M&As and some integrations and um, trying to bring things from being uh, commercialized things that were services over into, into software products. And I guess it was, uh, it was a little over six years ago that I made the hop over to founding active impact investments. And it was really just a moment in time in my life where I was searching for what I wanted to be when I grew up is the way I say it to some people. Um, and really what I landed on was I'd like to devote the rest of my life to climate and trying to solve or try to mitigate climate change. And so the path I ended up taking was venture capital. I didn't know what venture capital was six years ago. I had some people tell me that based on what I liked doing, what I was good at doing and how I was trying to create an impact that that could be an interesting path for me. But you see a lot of people who move into VC and that's something that they wanna do. That's kind of their passion. And then they have to try to figure out what their thesis is gonna be. You know, what type of companies are we going to invest in? How are we going to make people money? And I always say I was I was the exact opposite. I chose what my thesis was going to be, and then I decided how am I going to do that, and it, it ended up becoming venture capital. Yeah, and, and and when you think about the you know kind of back to the the passion, and it's something you and I clearly you know can relate. It, you know, if you look at the entire planet and all the different things you could focus on, it's like almost insurmountable. Like even if you had a venture fund with billions of dollars, like. What are you really going to do? So how do you decide, you know, we could talk about some macro problems, which I think are interesting. And, and, and even with Stuff TV, the reason I call it Stuff is because I believe if you look at the 50 billion tons of CO2 every year, I think Stuff and everything associated with it is probably about, probably 
you know, good, probably the biggest chunk of that, almost 40% of it, transportation, manufacturing, waste management. It, it is a massive amount of waste uh, we produced in that entire process as humans, all 8 billion of us. And so that's why I'm spending my time here. But, you know, for you, are there certain areas you, you get into? And I know, you know, you had this really interesting report on your website, the climate report you did in 2022 last year. And one of the things that I thought was interesting, you call it kind of this wake up call where, hey, if we don't make a bunch of changes, you know, you're going to have a lot of people uh, being displaced by climate. You know, is that, is that kind of, I was trying to think of the highest thing that you want, where, how you want to impact people. And I, I think a lot about climate and there's going to be these climate nomads, right? There's going to be people that aren't living where they're living anymore because it's not even habitable anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, are there macro things that make you think, man, I want to really solve these, these big meaty problems over here. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's a that's a big spot to dive in. But yeah, yeah, the, the, the climate nomad and people have been displaced. That is for sure one of the scary ones. I would say like there's a couple of tipping points that are scaring me and some people on the team right now where you just don't know when you've gone one step too far, how many sort of dominoes fall after that that you can't control. Um, you know, on, on, the, on the sort of the climate nomad thing, someone on my team did a bit of research and came to us the other day and said, did you know that almost the population of Canada is moving every year right now due to climate. And, wow. you know, we, we, we saw how much disruption and argument and everything happened just with displacing the, the people who were trying to immigrate from, from Syria, the Syrian refugees. Yes. And um, most people kind of uh, agree and can kind of draw that back now to, to, to a climate event. Um, and so that was a very tiny percentage of the world population that had to move around in comparison to how many are going to be moving around in the coming years. And humans are just not very good historically at welcoming new people into their countries and their borders. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think there's like a geopolitical risk to worry about there. I've spent a lot of time trying to kind of um, dumb this down, so to speak, not for other people, but probably even more so. Maybe for myself. <laughs> myself. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think about it uh, in terms of my lifetime, right? So, yeah. so I was, when I was born, um, I'm, in, I'm in my late 40s. Um, when I was born, the world population was 4 billion people. Yeah, same. Uh, we're, we, we just crossed uh, 8 billion or right eight. around the 8 billion mark, right? So, you look at that growth in population. I mean, obviously, it's just like completely unheard of in, in sort of like the entirety of, of humanity. Um, and you look at the strain and stress that has on the earth. And I think this is why just the concept of sustainability, instead of being a buzzword, starts to become critical, right? Like if you're if you're staring down at Earth from you know eons around in, in space and saying every living thing that we're aware of. Uh, in our universe exists on this one little thing. And there's just these three buckets on earth, land, air, and water that, that are kind of needed. Um, are the 8 billion people uh, consuming and drawing down the resources of that land, air, and water? Are we polluting and destroying enough of that land, air, and water that we're, like, we're, we're quickly running out? Mm -hmm. um, and if that's the case, how do we move to a point in time where we like can generate as much as we use and then we can live yeah. forever on this planet and that seems More to be circular. Kind of a pretty simple goal right what, um, one of the things that sorry uh, one of the things i just wanted to say as you're talking through that i thought i've often i've often quoted that same number you cannot have infinite resources 
on a finite amount of space. Right. right. And that's what we're trying to do with the planet. Like we have, we now have more animals on our planet. We, we take up more um, acreage now to feed humans than wildlife. Like we crossed that. And I think in the last few years too. So more and more of our planet is just basically our food chain to, to support humans. And so yeah. I, I like this idea of circular, like you said, is like, hey, you know, how can we coexist here? So we can't keep growing, but it's, you can't, you can't do what we just talked about. Like, I can't imagine the next 40 years. Now we're at 16 billion people on a fixed yeah. amount of space. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think what stands to reason is you look at when we had our first billion people on the planet or when we had our first million people on the planet and you could kind of look at it and say, all of you can kind of run around and do whatever you want. Like it's going to take a long time for this to add up to a problem or you know, nature is going to kind of regenerate itself faster than you can run as faster than you can run around and destroy it. But at some point, again, it stands to reason that the population is going to be big enough that collectively we're faster at being able to destroy things than than things can naturally sort of heal and repair themselves. And so, unfortunately, I think that is one tipping point we've gotten into. And how do we get into that tipping point? Well, we actually got into it by generating a lot of positive things. Like we, we generate a lot of productivity. We generate a lot of wealth. We improved the lifestyles of many, many, many people on earth. And so like, these are not bad things. It's just, we did them in a very primitive way. Like version one was just like, what's the cheapest, what's the most efficient. And I just think version two has got to be what's a way we can do it the last. And yeah. uh, I think a lot of people are starting to think about that now. And we need way more people thinking about that now and investing in that. Yeah. Yeah. I think circularity is the one that I really care about a lot. I think a lot about of our waste stream, where's all that going? And the challenge of course is, you know, where are these resources, where, where's waste, where are these, there's a lot of opportunities when it comes to local, but manufacturing is a global thing. And so how do you start to tap in and harness these things on a more local level? And I think if we can start to do that more then it, you know, I think there's just, you just, there's more ways, but, also, like to your point, like everything changed over the last 75 years, really pretty aggressively. So yeah. I think it's fair to look at everything and say, oh, just because we did it that way, doesn't mean we have to keep doing it that way. Absolutely. Now, how do we revisit this in a way that really makes sense? And I think it's things, conversations like this and getting, making sure people are aware like of the impact of things. And one thing yeah. I was promoting this week on one of the episodes I shot was this belief that people think, well, if I throw my compost in my trash, it's just going to decompose. And I've heard this multiple times to the point I, my wife was telling me, you got to put this on your episode because she thought that. I was like, wait a minute. You think you can throw your banana peel on top of all the plastic? Like, no, that thing's done. And so it's just simple things like that that maybe people just assumed until you kind of peel the, you know, peel the onion a little bit. You realize like, uh, actually, no, that thing is now yeah. trash. <laughs> yeah. And not, and not to mention that when you put food waste and it gets trapped and doesn't have access to oxygen, then it actually starts to produce methane gas, which is 30 or more times more harmful than CO2 and from a, from a global warming standpoint. So yeah. And, and like, just to your point about all of this happening over the last 75 years, the interesting thing is of course, kind of mapping that curve of human growth and then mapping that curve of like population growth and then mapping that curve of, of GHG emissions. So when you use the term waste, I think a lot of people don't really sort of think about us burning things as as waste, right? But, but we basically, the best analogy I've heard somebody say is like, we're using our air like an open sewer, right? It's, it's yeah. sort of like, believe that, I don't know, it goes up there and at some point it blows away. Like it's it's okay, but the it's reality is- It goes out like, into space. 
it's totally trapped in our atmosphere. And, and uh, like you said, the, the 50 billion tons of GHG emissions that are getting emitted on, a, on an annual basis, and the impact of that is just getting so clear. I heard this other stat from someone, I, I shared it with you the other day, because it's just, it was, it was so moving to me. But if you asked people to kind of think of the power of the Hiroshima bomb, and just how much energy you, you picture that happening, and you said, how many Hiroshima bombs worth of energy do you think that we're sort of like trapping within the Earth's surface and Earth's atmosphere because of all of the, the particulate and so on that we've put in the air so far? I think most people would name a pretty low number. Maybe it would be like a single digit number over the course of a year, over the course of a period of time. The number is actually estimated at four Hiroshima-sized bombs per second. Yeah. A second. Yeah, I could not believe that when you emailed that to me. I expected it to be big, but not that big. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's why June uh, was now the hottest month on record in 125,000 years. And then we rolled into July and three of the of the first days in July uh, consecutively broke the hottest day in human history, human recorded history. Every continent has hit the hottest it's ever been. Yeah, 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 that's a, that's a global global average. Um, and you think about the, the percentage of the population that lives or on or around the equator. I mean, they're the ones that are gonna be most affected um, as things really heat up. I think Death Valley was 130 something degrees, which is also a record. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's, that's, that's troubling. And, you know, I often describe this to people that don't understand really client, you know, climate and necessarily kind of the, how the atmosphere works. And I said, Here's the best analogy I've seen. Go open your car on a hot, sunny day. Maybe it's 80 degrees out, but your car is 125 degrees. Well, why is that? It's because that heat is trapped in there and it can't escape. And our atmosphere is a great, awesome thing. That's why we're all alive. Uh, but it's also pretty, you know, but it only can hold so much. So something, you know, some CO2 and things are released out of that. But, you know, you heat that thing up really, really hot. It's no different than you know, your car on a hot sunny day. And I think yeah. that we're really starting to see that. And so hopefully people can start to grok and understand when we talk about global warming, it's really extreme weather patterns. Yes, it's going to get hotter, but guess what? Come winter, we're also going to have extreme, um, you know, winters. And that's going to be the nature of, of things until we as humans decide to actually make changes. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, we're like, I, actually, I'm probably going to put a bit of thought into writing an article on this because I, I, I'm, I'm trying to, like I said, put it together in my own mind and I don't see a lot of people talking about this, but just like, what's the cascading set of events that are happening and how do we kind of, how do we piece it all together so that people actually maybe care more, maybe pay attention more. I'm not sure, but, yeah. um, we put the GHG emissions into the air. Um, we end up, uh, trapping more heat, like you've talked about, right? So now global temperatures have risen 1.1 degrees since, you know, on average since pre-industrial times, doesn't seem like a lot, but basically what's happened is the air is more polluted. So we have more people, um, dying from lung related problems and air pollution. So that's like sort of an immediate, uh, impact from that earth is warmer. So now, uh, ice is melting faster, ocean levels rising, currents sort of, uh, slowing down or changing, uh, paces. Um, and you just get sort of like this cascading thing where people are now getting more extreme weather events because if air is hotter, it can trap more moisture. So now you get more of the 
the floods, the storms, we're getting more of the droughts, the forest fires, and all these things are, are, are inter interconnected. And, and yeah, I guess the question is, is like, if that starts to accelerate, it's just so much harder to, to change, right? Like it gets hotter. Everybody turns on air conditioning. Yeah. <laughs> we, that's, that's we, producing. <laughs> we consume way more energy and, uh, and, 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 and we're burning more stuff to create the energy. Yeah. Yeah. I also, I wish I had these stats at the top of my mind, but it was talking about, I'm reading this book called, uh, was it net zero? Have you read this book? That's a new one. That's I haven't out. Read net zero. Um, and a, a few things I called out. One was the amount of people that are impacted by global warming. And it's in the two, three million or something a year that, that, that die or something because of all global warming. And the other one is the multiple billions and billions and billions of dollars of economic impact. And they were saying, if you fast forward this, even the next five to 10 years, potentially it'll be trillions of dollars. So when you put that on a GDP level, it's mm -hmm. going to be actually significant on the globe. And so that's the reason you need to come, we need to come up with new business ventures to support that. It's, I still think the challenge of course, is, is just the magnitude of it, right? You're trying to get so many different people to be rowing the same direction. And so that's why I hope to have content like this. So just kind of take the complexity and try to make it simple and get people curious. And I think the younger generation definitely pays a lot more to attention to this. Um, they seem to care a lot more. You, you can see that with their actions and the things that they're doing and how they're living their lives. Yeah. And I can feel you, uh, turning the corner and I, and I would love to as well to, uh, to move from sort of this destitute and, and concern and how big the problem is to, to the fact that I actually do believe it's achievable. Like, like I, I would feel like what I was doing was a complete waste of time. If I didn't feel like we were making progress like yeah. collectively as well as individually. And so. There's a couple things I would I would sort of point to on that I think are are interesting. I don't know if you read the book uh, Factfulness. Did you? Uh, no. So in that book, they basically talk about the fact that there are three things that have been uh, the number one culprit for uh, killing humans for all of humanity up until the last fifty years. So starvation, violent crime, and disease. And the really interesting thing is I just said up until the last 50 years. So basically on all three of those things, we decided as humanity to have a collective action, collective effort. And we said, these are important enough. So it's killing enough people yeah. we need to solve for them. And all three of them are now at the lowest levels in human history. And that's despite what you would hear in the media, it seems like we're in a more violent world. Uh, no. We're not, it would seem like more people are dying from disease. We are not, it would yeah. seem like, and that's even including COVID. Um, you know, and it would seem like there's still lots of people starving. Um, we've actually done a really good job as humanity in putting our heads together and working hard and investing in and solving those three issues. And so I just happen to believe that climate change is the next yeah. big thing that requires this massive collective action. And to your point, like you can kind of see that happening. I feel like every person yeah. I talk to, I'm kind of curious, where are you on your climate journey, right? Yeah. Like, how, are you... Are you aware or are you still kind of um, hoping things will just sort of fix themselves? Are you aware and concerned and trying to start to figure out how you can get involved? Are you aware and concerned and you're already quite involved? Are you aware and concerned and you're just fully devoted to it? Um, yeah. And I think like that's the thing to really track is across these 8 billion people. What's the level of education? What's the level of awareness? What's the level of motivation? What's the level of action? 
and we just need to get it to yeah. we need to get it to the majority. Yeah, you need people. It reminds me of the book, The Tipping Point, right? Yeah. You think things just hit this thing where everyone's like, "Enough is enough," and then it switches. And I do feel like we're we're we're, we're getting there. I think I think you see a lot of the you got you know policymakers and government that are pushing this, uh, not just here, but especially in Europe. I mean, Europe, we should just be looking up to them because they're they're, they're way ahead. Like you, Norway, Sweden. Like we're not even close, but I think government's been far more aggressive than our government on policy, but it's also kind of in the vernacular. People care up and, you know, business cares and pe you know, yeah. people are talking about it. And so my hope is it'll take time, but over time, you know, people, the matches are more educated, they'll create more pressure on business and that will create more pressure on government. And I think, you know, I think we're starting to see a lot of that, especially in the EV space. The EV yep. space is the perfect example of this on every front. You've got consumer demand, businesses making it happen, governments creating new policy, and that, that, that train is gonna happen. Like, I'm confident when I'm old and gray, like, no one's gonna drive combustion engines. Like, it'll be like horse and buggy. Like, oh, look at that horse-drawn carriage over there. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you don't have to be old and gray before we see that. I think it's gonna happen pretty fast, but uh, no, you're right. I think, I, I think we're on the right track with sort of that awareness. And I think people are already sort of swinging what's happening in elections and it's becoming a key sort of platform issue. And we are seeing some pretty incredible changes in policy. So you're right, uh, Europe way ahead of us in North America, but in North America, um, you know, for, for you in the US, the, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act basically put yeah. to work $500 billion worth of sort of like incentives and tax breaks and rebates that will be incredibly catalytic you know that that, that will actually create trillions of dollars um worth of uh, of of change i will say like in terms of what's needed uh additionally or to happen faster in my strong belief is it's not it's not an unknown problem like when we talk about those 50 billion tons of ghd emissions you can actually point to 100 corporations globally that are responsible for 70 percent of that oh yeah Right. So I think about that and I think like if you're a policymaker or you're the general population and you're trying to influence policy, we could really focus on those on those hundred companies, those hundred biggest uh, uh, polluters. And boy, would change happen quickly. And, and, and you hear this like this backlash, like, yeah, but, you know, yeah, capitalism and, you know, we don't want to interfere and. But the reality is, is like, there's already interference. Like a lot of those companies are already propped up with subsidies because they have yeah. huge profits. So they have lobbyists and those lobbyists I was say make huge con campaign contributions. And, and then that influences politicians that, that, that stop change that's, that's required. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah you've, you've got subsidies and you've got a lack of change and it's because profits being driven from a lot yeah. of these companies. I think that's the danger. Like if you look at the Koch family, right? One of the richest families on the planet. I mean, they're also one of the largest oil producers here in the US. They're the ones with the lobbyists, you know, you know, in DC saying climate change is a hoax, stop doing it, you know, right. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I agree fundamentally, go, out, go after the biggest companies that are that are because I think manufacturers need to have some level of accountability in the product they're producing. And today there really isn't like if Coke wants to go produce 100 million plastic water bottles, great. Nobody cares, whatever. And so I think at least in the U.S., that's always the challenge is those top 100 companies have so much power and the lobbyists. And so if they want to slow down innovation cycles, they can actually make an impact versus this up and coming startup that could have a huge impact. They have a lot of headwinds to try to, to get into the ecosystem. So I think that's part of the 
But we, but back to the point, we have everything we need to do to solve this problem. So it's not, it's not a lack of technology. It's a lack of willpower or urgency, I think. Uh, yeah. Cause that's, I mean, that's the reason I'm spending time doing content like this. And I, yeah. I think we're doing a lot of cool things. I just feel like we're moving far too slow on a bunch of them. You know, a little bit closer to what we're doing. Um, I know you and I chat a little bit about sort of the increase in funding that's flowing towards uh, venture capital that's, that's pegged towards climate. And so that's an encouraging sign. You know, we're, we're seeing a lot of um, encouraging signs of the momentum going the right direction. And it's, yeah. and it's, it's moving quickly. It's just, yeah, like you said, my, my hope is that can it continue to move at that pace and can we accelerate that pace? And, you know, how do, how do we get people that are further on in that continuum of, of like, Hey, I'm, I'm really committed to being a part of this solution. And doing it. Are, are there certain areas at your firm that you, like I said, in the very beginning of the call, if you try to boil the ocean, it feels like, man, it's just too many rocks going up too many hills, but are there certain areas you're like, Hey, I'm really passionate about this. I think this is going to be a big, big market in the future yeah we're we're probably a little more pragmatic than some venture capital funds i mean I, like obviously venture capital is a it's sort of a home run type business and and people look at that power law of you know you're going to get one in in 10 or one in however many of your portfolio companies that's going to go really big and and that's actually going to create the majority of the of the profits um, so there's a, there's a lot of funds out there that have approached climate with a little bit more of a, a moonshot type of approach, right? Like, you know, let's go after this technology that's totally transformative uh, and it will reinvent this industry and it will just fusion. Totally... Yeah, there you go. Great. Like great example. Right. So incredible uh, potential, incredible innovation would be very, very good uh, for, for, for our species, for the planet. But it's not a guarantee and it's how many years out, right? Where you compare that to what we might be a little bit more attracted to. And we tend to invest in a lot of things that is that are immediately creating uh, efficiency um, and optimization. And so one of the benefits of, of, of we think of, of what we're kind of focusing on is it's what you said, Nick, it's the solution already exists. The solution already drives economic benefit for the customer. So there's there's not this friction of having to try to decide whether to make the right choice or not because it's it's more sustainable and it can be implemented right now. And so I get I give an example often of of one company in our in our portfolio, although there are many, but we have a company in our portfolio called Railvision. Um, they have this. AI that helps trains to understand how to run more efficiently. The result is greater than 10% uh, savings in uh, diesel fuel burn, uh, which has a direct correlation to GHG emission reduction, but also has a direct correlation to savings on their second most expensive line item in their PL, which is which is fuel. Right. So you call up any railway yeah. and you say, you can use this tomorrow and it will work, and you'll immediately start paying 10% less in fuel and by the way you can also report out this benefit from a from an environmental standpoint yeah, no brainer it's a no brainer and so then what we get to deliver to our investors is and you, you saw our, our climate impact report so thanks for checking that out but it's it's ghg emissions that have already been able to be averted so so we're, we're at about 500,000 right now, uh, which is really cool. I mean, we're a tiny venture capital fund with a small portfolio and we're very early in, in, in doing this and nowhere close to the scale that we want to achieve in the, in the coming decades. Uh, but already to, to be able to be 
have been an integral part to be an important part of averting uh, 500,000 tons of GHG emissions is like, it's really exciting and encouraging for us. Well, and the fact that you track that, maybe if we could spend a few minutes on this, I think this would be an interesting one. Um, I th one of the things I'm really passionate about right now is trackability, especially, you know, for individuals and businesses, because that's the journey I'm on. I'm trying to understand what is my impact. And I go back to like the best examples that I've looked at is one, I spent a bunch of time researching the credit score, but also most more recently, uh, the nutrition labels. This kind of made me remember my childhood a lot more where when we were kids, there was no nutrition labels. Yeah. And then in the nineties, it was required. The government said, no, you have to have nutrition labels on anything that, that we consume. Then we started paying attention to calories, right? Then we actually knew what the heck a calorie was. And I was thinking about this, you know, all the time when I walk around with our, like, think of all the water bottles and everything. When we were kids, we, we never drank water. We drank yeah. soda and we drank Capri yeah. Suns. And so I think of that shift. Lots of Kool-Aid, lots of Kool-Aid. Yeah, lots of Kool-Aid, lots of bat, you know. And so I'm not saying we, we probably drink, plenty, we all consume plenty of terrible stuff still, but I think the biggest difference is you can't improve what you can't measure. And I think that is one of the biggest opportunities and I'm trying to support some other ventures that are doing this right now is we gotta be able to label everything about mm -hmm. what is the impact of this, every product, everything we consume, just like a nutrition label at the bottom, I should say like, what is the CO2 impact of this? And maybe I can scan a QR code and I can le learn more about what the heck that actually means. And yeah. so we, you know, there's some really intelligent people I know that I think are doing this the right way. I play with a, a various tools that I, I think are too surface level. I think you really have to look at it holistically. And my hope is over time, just like the nutrition label that governments are forcing this saying, no, 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 you have to, you have to, you have to be able to do that. Um, Absolutely. And so like the fact that you track this at that level, and that is a good size number for a firm, like, like you said, at your size to be able to show that is, is incredible. And I think it motivates people. Um, yeah, and, and, you know. and, and, and it does. I mean, it motivates our team. I think it motivates our investors. I think it motivates our founders. I think it motivates our founders' customers. So yeah, yeah. It, you're right. I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's right now a bit of a, like a differentiator of like a, a, a value add. Um, and then in some places actually becoming actually an economic driver, right? Like there's some places where there's, there's a price on carbon and, and you can actually monetize these carbon credits. And so we have a couple of portfolio companies that are already getting their primary source of revenue by delivering a business benefit and an economic benefit to their customer, uh, by, by way of a, a product or a service. And then off the side of that are actually selling carbon credits and, and sort of getting like a, a whole other incremental uh, uh, revenue stream. And in terms of the, the, like what, what gets measured gets managed, we actually uh, agreed with that so much. We, we've made three investments in that, in that space. We invested in a company called Sustain Life that does uh, carbon accounting uh, for businesses of all size. We invested in a company uh, called Manifest Climate and they help with uh, companies around climate disclosures. And we invest in a company called Symmetrica that does sort of a more broad-based uh, impact measurement for uh, for asset managers. And so, yeah, we we definitely believe what you believe, which is I think people would make different decisions if they were if there was a higher level of of transparency and if yeah. people really saw what was happening. Yeah, and more understanding. Um, was as you look ahead, I think just. What are there certain things that just excite you about the future? I think it sounds like you're like me, more of an optimist. I mean, clearly big, hairy, hard problems to solve. But as you think about the next five to 10 years, are there certain things that you're, you're like, yeah, I wish we could be there yesterday, but I'm, 
I'm excited about these trends you're seeing. Yeah, you know what? Like, I could go deep on a few things that our team has found, you know, a, like a particular piece of white space that's like super interesting to them. But I think I'm kind of inclined at my level to go to go uh, broad or high level. And I would just say that we are definitely climate generalists. So if you look across the types of things that we're investing in, we're actually trying to provide this really diversified uh, access to a whole bunch of things that are going to need to change, right? And that we just like, we know and we believe they're going to need to change. And so uh, there's very little uh, intelligence in terms of what our four pillars are that we focus on. It's basically the way humans create a lot of this waste and GHG emission. Like it's circular and sharing economy, it's clean energy and transportation, it's uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like the built environment and carbon solutions. It's, um, uh, whenever I'm doing this live, I always forget one, but anyways, it's, it's, these are not complicated <laughs> topics. It's like where humans create the problem where we tend to specialize a little bit more on the business model side. Uh, and, and so that's how we get to get really food and water, food, is, food and water was the money you didn't say sustainable food <laughs> and water. Yeah. That's, that's important for us as a species. Um, but, um, but yeah, so we'll, we'll tend to specialize a little bit more on, on, on business model We're you know, we're a little bit more software, we're a little bit more B2B. Um, and we just have like particular things that, that we like about certain stages of businesses and very much so around, uh, we're, we're pretty particular about founder selection. But what I would say is I'm watching people who have added climate to their investment thesis because they're starting to kind of get this FOMO, this excitement, like, oh, is this kind of like the next hot thing? Um, and so, you know, it was weed and it was crypto and it was climate. <laughs> and NFTs, AI, and AI yeah. Like, yeah, like the, the you know, the, the, the ball kind of moves around and people sort of like run towards like, what's this next big thing? So. I'm happy with that. I think like, I, like, I don't care what people's motivations are. I just want more money to flow in to support climate. But what I really believe is we just went through a couple of decades where Mark Andreessen from Andreessen Horowitz famously said software is eating the world. Mm -hmm. And we basically watched technology really uh, infiltrate and update and become such a critical part of how every business could compete for the last 20 years. And it's still happening, right? Like, uh, that digital transformation is still happening, but it like, you know, you could have 20 years ago decided that you're going to invest in software. Uh, but at some point you're, you actually don't even need to be a technology investor to be benefiting from technology because it's inserting itself into, into like the entire economy. I believe that that's what's going to happen with climate. Yeah. I believe that for the next 10, 20, 30 years, every company will be forced to become a sustainability company. And I believe that in a few funds, it will become totally redundant and ridiculous for us to label ourselves as a climate fund. I mean, people will- It'll just, like, be, a just, be, just a be a venture fund. just be a venture fund. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and so when people are trying to pick, you know, is this this little offshoot of the economy? I would say no, it is the economy, right? Like yeah. we will see this massive transformation in the next few decades. Yeah. And so when people ask me what my prediction of the future, it's, it is that. Like that is what we will see is every company needs a solution in order to become net zero. 
And some of those, those are easy solutions and some of those are very difficult solutions and some of those are cheap, some of those are expensive. Some of those will require selling new products or services or will require uh, partnering with different companies. Um, but that's my belief of really what's going to happen in the economy that gets me, it, it actually get, you know, obviously it gets me quite excited in the fact that we're, we care about the problem. We think a lot of innovation and money is going to pour into it. And of course, sort of our, our founders, their customers and our investors will, will benefit from that change. Yeah. I see that. Yeah, I see that future too. Very aligned on that. Uh, well, thanks so much for the time. If, if people wanted to, you know, engage you or your early startups, any recommendations on how to best reach out? I know normally people like referrals or should they go to your website? What would you recommend? <laughs> yeah. So our, our website has uh, all of our portfolio companies. Um, and so if you see something that people, you know, love what they're doing, then they all need more customers. We'd love to see all of them succeed. So please, you know, engage, buy their stuff. Um, if you go to our website, you can also sign up to our newsletter. So we, we put out some stuff once a month that's sort of our thinking on what's going on in the space. And it also has updates on what's going on. And then something I have to be very careful with, but um, we're, we're only allowed to, unfortunately, uh, work with accredited investors and we're never allowed to talk about sort of what we've got going on in terms of uh, funds, but all this to say, you know, if you are an accredited investor and if you bump into any venture capital fund that you really like what they're doing, especially in climate, uh, every fund is always not that far away from their next fund. So you might as well reach out if you, if you like what they're doing. Yeah. Well, thanks, Mike. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, I can go to yeah, Mike's website, activeimpactinvestments.com and really appreciate the time and the dialogue. I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, thank you, Nick. Great to, great to be on.